Um, this invitation from Torch was a real pleasure. It's the first time I speak under this umbrella. And what motivates me here, but more generally, is translation. Translation between disciplines, translation between national cultures and other cultures, and also translation between what we say here around these tables and the public sphere, as well as between ideological discourses. So quite naturally, uh, like many of you, I still have my wounds from the Brexit uh, moment. So we're really moving to a different realm from the two previous fantastic, uh, fascinating discussions. But as you'll see with echoes, obviously. And in any case, uh, I've ended up um, starting, I've ended up writing a little book, a short pamphlet on Brexit, um, which all started when I presented at New College, if you recall this, and where indeed the translation comes in because I had come up with the idea that there were three ways in which people, both in the UK and in the continent, perceive Brexit, which could be seen through three prisms of exceptionalism, skepticism, and pluralism. But what interested me was to again, speak to the broader public sphere. And this is where how I got to where I got today. So this is as, as, as a background. And because it's a little book, I generally don't read. But in this case, it's kind of written. So I'm going to read extracts of the book specifically on sacrifice. But I'm going to give you the context and get to the point. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was Brexit. But nobody knew what that word meant. And then the oracle spoke. Brexit means Brexit. What does it say about the prospects of Britain's exit from the EU that the word itself became the preferred contender for its explanation, no matter that different messages were received and sent in Britain and on the continent? Now, since the referendum, we each have had our own ways of dealing with the ubiquitous tautology. We've turned to the past and asked why. We've gazed into the future, trying to predict what will happen and prescribe what should happen. Explanations and implications, sociology and policy. But meaning, of course, is more than that, as Banksy recently tried to tell us in his great mural in Dover. Uh, meaning matters, for we've entered a battle of narratives whose protagonists will spare no crude shortcuts. Which narrative dominates the next two years will help determine the nature of this deal and maybe of the EU itself. And indeed, one of the things that's been fascinating for me is to see how in this country there's been a, a dozen novels on Brexit. And they all have the same arc of, re, of resistance and ultimate triumph, which is Brexit, always. That is their meaning. But then, you know, the meaning matters for less instrumental reasons too. They matter to our individual sense of identity and connectedness. Meanings process feelings, but do not transcend them. And as Roland Barthes famously argued, when the hidden narratives which sustain our societies rise to the surface, they borrow from the qualities of past fantastic tales, which help us determine what we see. They become mythology, Barthes says. Now, it's clear to any casual observer that the great debate between Brexiters and Remainers have been powered by different historical mythology in this country. We all know these historical mythologies of the Charles VIII and Napoleon and all the rest of it. But behind and beyond collective memory, historical memory, and the lesson we pretend to extract from them, there are other kinds of myths. 
Great archetypal myths, sacred narratives which may provide a less contested terrain for our democratic conversation. Now that's why I ask, could it help them to explore the meaning of Brexit as ancient mythology? To juxtapose parallel and incommensurable meanings under the shadow of great archetypes and treat Brexit like, like all such derivative of archetypes as a dramatic pivot around a moment with a before and an after, somehow connecting a feature of being, to be or not to be European, with a feature of doing, to, to stay or not to stay in the EU. And it's in the making this, of this connection visible that myths acquire meaning, allowing for an infinite retelling in infinite circumstances and yet serving as stable beacons for our collective imagination. So in this spirit, I've suggested in this little book, this pamphlet, that the meaning of Brexit can be told through the prism of three archetypal myths, each connecting being and doing in different ways. There are stories of exodus, stories of reckoning, and stories of sacrifice. Now, whether these stories faithfully echo the voice of the world, as Bacon would have it, or whether they simply constitute a common referent, we, we kind of feel we all know what they mean. And yet they did not emerge from our collective imagination uh, to provide easy answers to our predicament. Myths are always ambiguous, and, and they serve as ever-retreating truth mirrors, raise more questions. So my hope then with the book is to adopt these dramatically different vantage points uh, and see how they can help us confront the meanings that different categories of people hold, not just leavers and remainers, but um, uh, citizens in different places, tribals and cosmopolitans, Brussels bubble, EU neighbors, rest of the world. So you have these meanings. They clash, they overlap, they cross in the dark, but they're, they're kind of around there. And how can we kind of both simplify and put them in conversation, including within our own heads, because of course we all hold different meanings together in our minds about all sorts of social facts, right? So even if we don't each manage an enlarged Kantian viewpoint about the world, we can at least try to shed some sort of meaning on each other's story, to understand each other's stories. And in the process, I hope when my ultimate kind of political aim is to um, contribute in my small ways to the conversation as one of mutual recognition of our different stories, mutual respect, and ultimately, perhaps, hopefully, a do-no-harm Brexit a gentler, kinder kind of Brexit, which is about entering a democratic conversation. Now, um, so in the book, I go through these three meanings, it's exceptionalism of Brit or Britain, Brexit as exodus. Um, and of course, when not all the tribes want to go in exode and leave Egypt. Um, and then uh, there is Brexit as skepticism and reckoning. The Last Judgment, uh, Oedipus, and who, how are we going to sort out the sinners and, and the goods and the bad, and all of that. These are stories that I can share with you at some other point. Uh, and this ultimately is the, the myth of air in Plato, where it tells us what, why it's so important to be wise about this choice. Now, where, what I want to talk today uh, to you about is how we can think of Brexit as sacrifice then, given that this is the topic of our conversation. And of course, Brexit as sacrifice is the most immediate meaning that is held by many. Uh, it, it's not that 
um, it's a flare that about something that will or should happen in the in the in the future, as in reckoning, um, or the sign of an identity of a people, you know, as in exceptionalism and exodus. But it's about an event that in itself somehow at one moment in time changes the world. And that's kind of the starting point of sacrifice, where sacrifice is, 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 is some, something that happens on the altar, altar of some greater good, with all the caveats that Faisal told us about. And of course, short of Martin's, Latour's, you know, modernist fantasy of radical sacrificial rupture, we're talking of a perhaps less radical, less grand, but nevertheless a macro-political rupture. So here in, in this story, uh, according to this painting, you know, Brexit takes the form of Agamemnon's daughter, Iphigenia, which means the strongborn, offered to the gods for the winds to rise and take the Greek flotilla to sail off to conquer Troy. So if you understand Brexit in that way, Brexit means that you leave the EU in order to save it. And it's, it's, it's a simple, there is a simple version of that, which you're all aware of. There I say a macho version, or at least for me it's the macho version of the story, which we can call heroic sacrifice, and we've already spoken about that. So you know, just before the referendum, a very well-known French journalist, Jean Quatremer of Libération, he's a veteran Brussels correspondent, everyone loves him, um, and, um, and he expressed a general feeling by penning an editorial uh, called Brexit, a sacrifice to save Europe. And he, in there, he implored the Brits to have courage and vote leave, not because it was in their interest, it wasn't, but for Europe's sake. Uh, staying would bury forever the Federalist dream, while leaving will, and I quote, create a salutary crisis of the kind that will lead our heroic leaders to act against the moral risk of crumbling into nothingness. It's a very French way of speaking. <laughs> Martin will recognize. Uh, so as with the exo Exodus story, this heroic version of Brexit as sacrifice also I mean, serves Euro-Federalists, like Jean Quatremer, and Brexiters alike. Did, did you not often hear Boris Johnson during the campaign reassure all his continental friends, you know, and including his wife, not to worry since Brexit will be good for you. With us out, this way you can integrate all you want. We are sacrificing for you. Um, and strangely, both of these sides brought up Britain's history of truly heroic sacrifice on the battlefields of Europe as the buried evidence for the virtues of Brexit. The mass graves of the Somme, some as proofs of the virtue of absence. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's my voice. So unless, of course, we understand the sacrifice narrative in a way which preserves its genuinely ambiguous nature, a sacrifice which we can all more easily live with, literally, an ironic sacrifice. This is. Uh, what I give you as an ironic sacrifice, always look on the bright side of life. Or, as Boris said, we're going to make a titanic success of it. So isn't there a tragic irony in celebrating Britain's current retreat to the cliffs of Dover as an echo of its heroic landing on the shores of, shores of the Normandy 70 years ago, in invoking the great sacrifices of two world wars which steered still steered in the hearts of so many European citizens as proof that the world is better off when Britain retreats from the continent's affairs. 
Let's liberate ourselves from liberating, sings the British crowd. Abandons attempt at bringing together an ungrateful continent we once proudly helped liberate from fascism. But the chorus retorts, is that the lesson to be drawn from your periodic rescues of the divided European tribes from imperial overreach? Does it not make more sense for Britain to prevent the need for sacrifice in the first place rather than squander the peace dividend? Isn't Europe, including Britain, better off when the latter still is still involved in its affairs, mission never accomplished? So that's kind of the ironic question to the heroic sacrifice. But of course, once we're in this realm of sacrifice, we are already thinking about all the different variants and complications which every myth gives us. And that's kind of what I, want, I try to do you know, in the book. Because, of course, theories of atonement, which are the uh, pendant of theories of uh, sacrifice, offer us a multitude of ironic variants. Wishful thinking Europeans on their side would like to believe in what Christian theologians referred to as the ransom sacrifice, which annuls bad consequences for the rest of us by happening. Now, in response, and that would be the reckoning story. We're afraid that it's this terrible story, but now we have Britain is doing this ransom sacrifice. Now, in response, Brexiters vow to hold the EU to ransom till they're truly gone. Just like in chess, an apparent sacrifice is about giving up something in the short term for greater power later. Uh, so these Brexiters recall how sacrifices have a way to come back and haunt executioners. Britain playing the role of willing victim, of the willing victim in this story. Uh, remember how Clytemnestra uh, uh, saw it that Agamemnon would pay for sacrificing their daughter Iphigenia. And Stannis Baratheon, Game of Thrones, is executed for sacrificing his own daughter by no other than Lady Brian of Tarth. What is it with strong women with daggers? In, in every sacrifice, you have these strong women with daggers. In short, that's, <laughs> we'll connect back. In short, Brexit is predicated for them on a bet, the old role reversal of sacrifice featuring the victim's resurrection and the cursed hangman. The EU would be punished for trying to punish Britain. So the real question here is what makes the sacrifice real? After all, Christ came back to life and got to be with his dad for eternity. At the same time as Abraham's faith was being put to the test, sorry, at the last moment, as Abraham's faith was being put to the test by God's command to sacrifice his adored son Isaac, Isaac was replaced by a ram, literally by an escape goat. And in at least some of the version of the story of Iphigenia, uh, she's not buried at the stake, but raises like the phoenix, ready to, roam, ready, ready to roam the world with her brother Orestes, we recall. So, but it's in some of the stories and not others. Uh, and you know, so with Britain free again to nurture, for instance, the special relationship, can Teresa unbashedly embrace the Donald on behalf of British citizens? Um, so myths of sacrifice often give us a quantum superposition, alive and dead on the spire. Who is to say the victim of mythical sacrifices more often than not do stay alive and well? Or is it almost alive and well? Of course, that is what leavers believe. Post-Brexit UK awaits no post-mortem. Thank you very much. 
So that was one first variant. But whatever you, your side of the story, is sacrifice not ultimately always in vain? Yes, the wind did rise to carry Agamemnon's ships to Troy after Iphigenia's sacrifice, but there are precious few triumphant welcome home in the Odyssey. Uh, Europe, what would Brexit as sacrifice do for you? There is in fact one crucial ironic answer to this question, which does not require pronouncing on any kind of resurrection of Europe. Brexit means that you can leave the EU and therefore you shouldn't. And this, this version of sacrifice really starts with the idea that the sacrifice is demonstrative of an essence, and in this case the essence of a union defined by the way in which you leave it. And that's, that was what happened in all the big articles around the convention. Uh, Article 50, I was part of that in the early 2000s, when you had the sovereign is very unhappy. This is a ploy. States, the EU should become a state. States do not have prenups. Uh, even the UK, it wasn't quite easy to, to go that in that direction. And, and if we can't cross that Rubicon, you know, we can never be like the US, which established in 1865 that you cannot secede from the Union. And that's what made it a federal state. Now, I personally, I, became, I belong to a different category of Europhiles who defended the idea that the key, this idea of exit was key to defining a union as a union of plural, of people who govern together, but not as one and are together by choice. That's what I call a democracy. And so obviously, so there's a whole theory of why this thing, exit, is so important to the essence of the union. But of course, you can, you can defend something in theory and not in practice and end up a bit schizophrenic about that. Um, but, the, but the crust of the matter is that if Brexit demonstrates that, that this is a union that you can leave, it is this very freedom to leave it that ought to entice you to stay. This is the obvious Brexit paradox. If EU is a terrible supranational Leviathan clipping Britain's sovereign wings, how can it be so easy to detach yourself from it? So Brexit as sacrifice has offered the world this Brexit paradox and the ironies of the current saga. And there are many ironies, and I just give you a few of them in this ironic sacrifice. Taking back control is obviously the ultimate goal of human sacrifices. Taking back control of the winds, of rain, of thunders, Agamemnon shots shall sail. But what control is to be had when all we face are tragic choices? And that was very much your story, Faisal. Um, isn't there some irony in the sense of some of the English stories who, as they contemplate their less and less united kingdom, have made their preferences plain. Leaving one union is a bigger deal than keeping the other together. Brexit is the grand return to the country's true destiny. It may as well be exit. Perhaps the point of it all then is to bring back England to its size, unencumbered by the weight of its imperial past. Or as Michael Caine said before and after the vote, freedom has no price. This is your recessive interest story, Faisal. We get it, Brexit is about sacrificing some maybe much welfare, if need be, in order to control the rules of the game on one's territory. Isn't there some irony then in a clean Brexit predicated on a Great Britain Act, cloaked as a Great Repeal Act, by which we will keep everything as it is, the EU rules on the book 
and the EU citizens like me in their bonds. For everything to change, everything must remain the same. That's kind of the message of this, we will see. Isn't there some irony in asking Westminster and Whitehall, the two most pro-European bodies in this country, to sanction and conduct the deed themselves, all along having to explain to the Brexiteers at the top what it all entails? Here is the old British aristocratic oath of obedience as its best, the sacrifice of their own view to the will of the people. It's hard for their friends on the continent not truly to admire a whole political class and civil service mobilizing with such ingenuity to produce an outcome which they deplore. And it is hard to decide to deny the sense of humor of a British people who instructed the same Westminster and Whitehall to restore their authority on UK matters and then turn around to brand judges, their enemies, for requiring exactly that. Can hope lie with the return of imperial preferences? How, when India explains loud and clear that its own prices, free movement, exactly like the cumbersome European partners? If it is to be consistent, the sacrifice to the gods of border control will need to concern the Commonwealth too. And is it a good thing that all these countries from the Commonwealth will prefer now to deal directly with Brussels, um, etc.? But perhaps the greatest irony is on us, EU expats in the UK, who might have to become British citizens precisely when we're no longer encouraged to call home the country where we chose to raise our children. So perhaps we need to um, allow for the thought that the British PM truly understands the irony of the tragic choices she's asked to engineer. It would be ironic for her partners to insist on denying her the smokes and mirrors which will make this sacrifice bearable for all involved. There are always smokes and mirrors in, in this mythical sacrifice. Um, allow for the thought that she does see the irony in presenting self-mutilation as a threat on the part of a country so proud to have offered the highest standards of civilization to the rest of the world. Um, maybe she's simply speaking the language of ironic sacrifice. Nevertheless, I'm going to skip. There's some, a lot of other ironies there. But now, all this leaves, leads us to the irony of this British sacrifice, which is that in order to succeed, it needs to avail itself of all that is good about British exceptionalism, that precisely which remain, reminds us why it should not have happened in the first place. Like the Enlightenment turn in Christian theology, which privileged the idea of sacrifice for the sake of greater moral influence or moral government for Grotius, the UK could aspire to demonstrate its worthiness in the manner it withdraws, in the manner in which it implements the sacrifice. It could remind its fellow Europeans of those bits of British exceptionalism which made good, makes good on such moral influence through sacrifice, having to do with the right of the rule to limit power, a stubborn adherence to legal commitment, the ethos of Her Majesty's loyal opposition, or a history of restraint from arbitrary interference with people's life, otherwise known as the rule of law. After four decades of co-creation of its legal and political order, this EU is not what it would have been without the UK. And so we could ask um, whether somehow <coughs> this very essence of British exceptionalism could 
carry its moral influence through its own in, within the EU through its more own uh, impulse to leave it. Which leads, uh, leads us to kind of the most fundamental bit of all. The age-old practice of doing something terrible for the sake of a higher purpose is supposed to be the mark of our superior species. No other animal is, is into sacrifice on this earth. But in his great wisdom, Maimonides did think a lot about sacrifice, and he ended up arguing that God's decision to allow sacrifices, whether humans or animals, by human being, was a concession to the psychological limitations of humans. That's how he reconciled himself to it. So do we need scapegoats? If we believe René Girard's brilliant demonstration, which was already alluded to by Martin, the difference between the scapegoating of Jesus and others before him is that the resurrection Jesus is shown to be, in this resurrection, is shown to be an innocent victim. Humanity is thus made aware of its violent tendencies, and the cycle is broken of infinite mimetic desires and chaos in society. And somehow, this self-reflective sacrifice serves as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and restore order in our society, perhaps through ideas of sacrifice or images of sacrifices or metaphors of sacrifice. But thanks to Jesus, we don't need the enactment anymore. Maybe already, thanks to Iphigenia, we could have been spared the whole Christian parenthesis uh, since the ancient Greeks. So then the question becomes, can Brexit live up to the category of self-reflective sacrifice? Can politics live up to the category of self-reflective sacrifice? Can its protagonist jettison the blame game? And that's perhaps how we can be in Martin's in-between realm of politics, the one that Bruno Latour so much feared and, and hated, uh, through this self-reflectiveness and self-awareness. Perhaps that's the key, and that's the only key. Um, so perhaps, then, European citizens can mobilize the narratives of exodus, exodus light, as I like to call it, and reckoning as really seeing uncomfortable truth. Those as primary material in a story of sacrifice made good if they're able to hone a very British value, pluralism, but a radical agonistic kind of pluralism mediated by democratic contestation as much as technocratic rationality. This is where I go in the book in my kind of theory of Brexit interruptus and how the EU could develop, become more British, and therefore, through, through differentiation, radical pluralism, internet pluralism, many other things, and develop the kind of pluralist EU that the Brits would have loved if only they'd kind of stuck around. But I'm going to skip that for the, in the interest of time. Um, mentioned that I, in every bit of the book, I care always about how the rest of the world see it. And here I would simply say that if the rest of the world witnesses the EU's unlikely, I admit, embrace of a philosophy of radical pluralism, for them it would be good news, leading to the EU's abandonment once and for all of talks of Europe as a model, the obsession with speaking with one voice as if it was a state, and the resort to othering and Euro-nationalism to make up for our insecurities. If we do so, others are more likely to receive the British sacrifice, not as a sign of weakness and decline of this continent, but as a sign of Europe's welcome maturity at 60. 
and continued relevance as a fascinating experiment in pluralist transnational governance. But that's kind of what I, bits of what I have to say about sacrifice. Now, to conclude overall in the book on a more kind of philosophical note, I, I, would, I just simply want to, to add, Brexit mythologizing can be one of many ways for us to reinvent how we conduct our democratic conversation and break through the walls of our infamous echo chambers. By invoking archetypal myth, I could easily be accused of ignoring 2,000 years of political philosophy which developed precisely as anti-myth from Plato to Popper. And we have a wonderful doctoral student who worked on Plato's myth in that. Um, and, well, she's a Harvard student, but she's visiting us these days. But if words are the currency of politics, myths are the currency of our political imaginaries and resources for connecting diverse democratic praxis. By appealing to our fundamental intuition, they can counter or at least supplement the Habermasian idea of democracy as deliberative rationality. Not because we cannot be rational, but because to be so together, we need common languages across lingua, disciplines, ideologies, or national cultures, language which, languages in which we can disagree with greater civility. At the same time, and perhaps paradoxically, thinking through the prism, prism of myths, especially sacrificial myth, myth, may help us recover the recul of modernity by supporting a critical distance, smiles, and question marks around our collective self-righteousness in these debates. For if agonistic politics reminds us that conflict must be handled rather than denied and that values can remain incommensurable and thus unamenable to liberal compromises, again, Faisal, then myths appear as better templates for the conversation than technocratic blueprints. By flirting with tragic choices, the absurd and the desperate ironies entangling human beings, myths contain their own epistemic limits, at least in our contemporary eyes, and I would argue even in Greek eyes, who didn't entirely believe in their own myth. And they remind us that ambivalence is our birthright, not just as individual, but also as collective. So, like with an Esther drawing, we can simultaneously see the meaning of Brexit through many prisms, and yet none of the various stories that I have told and we can tell offer incontrovertible facts, facts that we can hang on to later in order to claim that we were betrayed or vindicated. We must accept the incompleteness of our narratives and open them up to each other. So on my part, then I could give my own take on where, where I would stand. But let me end simply by saying that in the end, in the end, if we heed the ultimate message of our tragic stories, that we must choose hope against optimism, we may perhaps find solace from another mythical figure, Penelope, who unweaved at night her day's labor to placate her suitors while awaiting Ulysses. In our 21st century version of the story, we can count on our heroic Brexiters of all kinds to frantically unweave the ties that bind in broad daylight but perhaps, just perhaps, the spirit of global mutual recognition will linger forcefully enough here, there, and everywhere so that in the dark, when they're not looking, we will continue to weave and reweave the fabric of our shared future. That's the end.